Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented by Lumpen Radio. This week, we talk with a woman directly affected by Trump's Muslim ban, meet an up-and-coming local producer, and get the lowdown on the brave new world of robotics and transhumanism. Sarveen Hajiji is an artist-in-residence at the Joe Brothers Art Center here on Morgan Street. She also became the face of Trump's Muslim ban two weeks ago, a green card holder from Iran. She was stranded in Australia, separated from her husband and friends here. She told her chilling story to Radio Free Bridgeport. Radio Free airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Today we're joined by Sarvan, uh, Sarvan Cully, and, and uh, a resident artist at the Joby Art Center, um, and someone who has been directly affected by, uh, by some of the uh, executive orders that have come over the last 30 days. Welcome, Sarvan. Thank Welcome. you so much. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we, I think one of the second or third weeks of, of this year, we actually reported on travel restrictions that happened over the weekend on a Saturday, kind of a random day for the White House to put out some of this stuff. And um, and this is something that, that directly affected you. Yes, it did. Um, yeah, I was in Australia at the time visiting family. Um, my parents and my sister, my siblings, they're both there. Um, I was there with my husband, uh, who had to travel back home to Chicago for work reasons. And he traveled back on Wednesday, and then Friday, <laughs> the executive order happened. So now, And why were you caught up in this? We should back up a little bit and let people know why sure. you were particularly affected by this. Yeah, so I have an Iranian passport. Uh, I was born in Iran, um, and I'm a permanent resident here. In Sh- so I'm a legal green card holder in the U.S. Um, and it will take... Um, I think this is something that mo- most people didn't know, uh, making comments, which is fine, but getting a green card is not really the easiest process. We, we go through a lot of vetting and questioning and interviews and you name it. They might come to our house and knock on the door and just go through our stuff just to make sure if we're really married or not. Um, so it's like two and a half years bet- uh, to three and a half years of this. Um, so, yeah, I have a green card, and I will be eligible to get a citizenship only three years after the day that I get my green card, which is which was exactly when I was in Australia. Um, so, so you were in Australia when you were eligible to become an yes, American citizen? Yes, and I already had uh, talked to my lawyer, and he said, once you're back, we will just proceed with the documentation and just oh to gosh. go ahead. And, you know, you know, you just wake up and you never know what's going to happen the next day. Do you still want to become an American citizen? <laughs> I mean, that's an obvious question. I mean, I've, I've you know, I've passed the most of the process. So at this point, it's, it's still better than my own passport because still, although I have the green card, um, I have to get visa to go anywhere else. I can never go to the airport and say, oh, I'm going to go to Paris. No, I have to plan three months out of time provide documentations to the embassy, and then just go, you know. So for me, it will be, obviously, it will make sense to get it. Um, I'm not really excited about it <laughs> as I was before, but, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I still think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still grateful to have that opportunity still. And, and obviously it's less exciting because you've gone through every process. As you said, there's been that extreme vetting that they've already talked about through through this three-year process that you're now eventually eligible for citizenship. Yes, and and still now, it will take me between six months to a year. Um, it might take more, but that's the average to get the citizenship. And still, there's another you know set of interviews and documentation, fingerprinting. Honestly, I've done probably, I'm not exaggerating, nine times I've, I've done fingerprints so far. So you were telling, nine times? Nine, nine times. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Nine Downtown, times. right here. 
Um, it's been different different locations actually. It was never the same. Um, so yeah, every time they gave me a letter and I had to go to that specific spot. Amazing. So that you know that that you're you're talking about some of the work that's that's done for folks who have green cards, and it was very unclear what the status was and what the intention of of the executive uh, travel restriction, which came down and they said it was for strictly for security reasons. Um, but even folks who had been vetted who have legal status um, were denied. And so so you were kind of stuck in, uh, how, how did you start the communication process? I originally how saw did this you story. Feel? I mean, how yeah. did you feel? You're, I, you've been living here with your husband. You're stuck all of a sudden in a country. What, what was going through your head at this point? I was heartbroken because I thought I can't even come back home to pack my bags. You know, it was just, it was mind-blowing, I thought. Um, and I was, it was soul-crushing. It really was. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Um, my parents were worried. I didn't want to worry them. What did they tell you? Did you were you kicked off a plane? I mean, what, what happened? No. So what happened was when the executive order came into action, um, obviously we heard about it. And then I was talking to my lawyer and Andy, my husband, and we were just, you know, doing inter- you know multiple calls, FaceTimes. And uh, my lawyer said, you should stay put for a few days at least till we get more details because people are being detained, uh, green card holders in the airport. So nobody knows what's going on. There's no, you know, there's no specific details on this order. So he said, just, you know, delay your trip and let's see how it happens. If if it gets tougher for you, we will fight for you. And if it's not, then at least we know where we stand. So I didn't even go to the airport. Um, I just stayed and then... I honestly, and I think a lot of people agree with me, if it wasn't for people and protests and all the supports that me and a lot of people got, I think they wouldn't have backed out. I think they really wanted to eliminate people like me as well. Um, not why, to, why people like you as well? Why? Because of where I was born, you know. Um, I mean, Iran and all these seven countries um, that were included in this ban, I honestly, I honestly believe it's very, very unfair um, because... None of these countries were involved in any terrorist attacks directly. Those who were involved, actually, they are not included in this in this ban um, because of the you know the business relationships that the current president has. Well, let, let's back up for a second though. You're you're from Iran, Tehran. You came here as you told us off air in two thousand six. Is I, that correct? Yeah, I, I got out of Iran in two thousand six. Um, so I I was born and raised in Tehran in Iran. Um, and had an amazing childhood. Uh, it's a beautiful country, amazing people. I hope everybody gets to see it. Um, I moved out in 2006. Um, I went to Dubai to work, uh, which was great because I got to live on my own and it was close enough to home that I could go go back every month. It's just an hour, 45 minutes flight. Um, then we were planning to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro at some point with my friends. That was on our bucket list. and. My friend, one of my really good friends that she's now in in Canada, um, she's Palestinian, and she said, I have this really good friend because we were supposed to be 10 people and we were nine people, so we were one person short. And she said, oh, I know this guy that I met um, in a Habitat for Humanity trip in Cambodia. He will totally come. And that was Andy. So I always say we met in the highest peak of Africa. We fell in love. You know, one of those things that you you never think it will happen. And we dated for almost two years long distance, so nine hours difference, which was really tough. But uh, it got to the point that, you know, somebody had to move. So I moved here and we got married and the rest is history. So I moved in, um, I moved to Chicago in 2013. 
Now, with this is something I don't think people are actually very cognizant of. And the only, I'll be candid, I wasn't cognizant of it until I was living in L.A. And L.A. has a large Iranian Persian population yes. there. People travel back and forth to Iran from the United States all the time, or yes. at least they did until about 15 days ago. Yes. A friend of mine actually has a travel company that's based in Iran that caters to Americans that want to see it. Despite the uh, tensions between our respective governments, and those tensions have been around for, what, 40 years now? I mean, there's been stuff back and forth. There is a huge Iranian population Absolutely. in America, and there's a huge uh, contingent of people that travel back and forth. Uh, the the <laughs> yeah. first time that I heard about this was actually a, a story that was shared by your husband. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, the, the community that that's, you're surrounded with at, at the Joby Art Center was um, very vocal and a lot of friends of ours. I was just recently married at the, at the center, and they're very good friends of ours. Um, and, and so I, we constantly heard and, and we're getting updates and we're very fortunate to hear about that. Um, but I mean, I, I can imagine this was very difficult, uh, for, for you guys. I mean, you're, as we said, a green card holder and, and you've been married and you've been living here in the, in the city. I mean, it was, it was just crazy. Cause at one point we were thinking, okay, what is our plan B? I can't, I can't just stay forever in Australia, obviously. So our plan B was just to get a ticket. I, I should go to the airport, get a ticket, and go to Canada, and Andy should follow. And then we'll see what will happen next. Because we can't, we couldn't come here. We couldn't live in the U.S. We couldn't live in Iran together. Um, so it was just, you know, one of those cases that we really did, we had no clue what what's next, but where we can live. What did What did you talk about with your husband when you when you called him? That first time when you when you didn't go to the airport, the lawyer said you can't go. You're you're what 12, 17 hours, isn't it? Seventeen hours yes. difference. Yes. Yeah, so seventeen yeah. hours different. You're you're in the middle of the night. It's probably dawn here or whatever. What what did what did you say? I at the beginning, I honestly couldn't talk. I was just in tears. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. And once I could control myself a little bit, um, we were we just had to really get real and see okay, what can we do? So we just went ahead and talked to my lawyer, as I said, and he, their team has been amazing. Um, but we it's just constant following of news, and you hear all these rumors, and you hear all these terrible stories as well. Some are true, some are not. So it's just, it was just living in such a terrible time, honestly. And I, I know that I had the opportunity to be with my family, but still, it was it was terrible. It was terrible, because it's Honestly, we, we really couldn't enjoy it at all. Did you know of the protests that were going on at O'Hare Airport when that decree came down? Did you hear about them or did your husband tell you about them? Yeah, well, I, I knew what was going on because um, I'm very fortunate to have friends that are very active and they're very uh, compassionate, um, you know, although they're not Muslims or they're not from, from Iran, but they were, you know, um, especially Chicago. I think it, they've been great. Um, Especially, people, my, you know, my friends at Joby Art Center, they've been so, so supportive. It's been, it was, those are the things that, you know, it, it, war, it warmed, my, warmed my heart and uh, really kept me going and made me feel really stronger. Um, but, yeah, I, I knew all about it because um, the first thing that we did, and we were not sure if we, could, we should go social with, our, with my story or not, because it, you know, it's always 50-50, it might have backfired, but... But I thought, um, I mean, we both came to an agreement that if we put a face to the problem, that maybe people can see that this is happening to normal people, that, you know, an American guy who's married to an Iranian girl, and then we were just living our lives like a normal couple, and then, you know, now we can't. Um, 
So my friend who's a journalist, who used to be a journalist, Anthony Ponce, um, he helped a lot. So we did the Facebook Live and, you know, everything, all the videos got shared so much. And then Andy was at O'Hare himself, so he did a video. So it just, you know, it was just from there, people started sharing and started contacting me. And I got these amazing messages from all over the world um, that it was just, you know, it was just amazing. In the beginning, as I said, I was so crushed that I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna live here anymore. I, it does, it doesn't worth it. But as the time went by and I saw all this support and love that people are giving me, I said, okay, there's definitely more good than bad. And I think we all have to stand together and you know, just, just fight for each other. That's what they're doing for me, and it's my duty to do it for somebody else, or those who are in trouble right now. <laughs> The Trump Diaries, day 27, February 17th. Donald Trump charged Friday that the media aren't just a foe of his White House, but an enemy of the American people. In a tweet Friday afternoon, the president blasted what he called fake news media, singling out in particular the New York Times and all three major networks. Trump tweeted, the fake news media failing New York Times, NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. And the AP reported that the Trump administration considered a proposal to use National Guard troops to round up unauthorized immigrants, including millions living nowhere near the Mexico border. Staffers in the Department of Homeland Security said the proposal had been discussed as recently as last Friday. The proposal called for an unprecedented militarization of immigration enforcement as far north as Portland, Oregon, and as far east as New Orleans, Louisiana. The White House denies the plan was to be implemented. Said Sean Spicer, that is 100% not true. It is false. It is irresponsible to be saying this. And the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes sent a letter to the FBI asking it to investigate leaks of classified information. Trump has been rocked by a series of damaging stories in recent days, fed by leaks. Nunes has suggested in that the leaks came from career government intelligence employees who are either, quote, loyal to former President Obama or opposed to Trump. Day 28, February 18th. Trump on Saturday doubled down on his claim that he, quote, inherited a mess, tweeting, don't believe the mainstream, parentheses, fake news media. The White House is running very well. I inherited a mess and I'm in the process of fixing it. Meanwhile, Republican congressmen returned home this weekend for break to pack town halls and frosty receptions across the country after a chaotic first four weeks under Donald Trump. Even in safely red states, lawmakers were getting an earful from citizens, fearful of the upending of Medicare, the Obamacare, and the EPA. Some Republicans have even ducked town hall meetings, claiming the protests greeting them are organized by outside agitators. Privately, however, people on the left and the right both concede the outpouring of anger that Trump has provoked is unprecedented. And Trump staged a raucous campaign rally Saturday in front of a throng of supporters. Trump rattled off familiar campaign promises, scolded the media, mocked protesters, and declared that it is a new day in America, while basking in the applause from a crowd of 9,000 people that waited hours in the sun. Trump thundered, this will be changed for the ages, change like never before. And his remarks also included several lies and exaggerations. The airport hangar event was the clearest indication of a Trump administration trying to regroup after a rough first month. And the White House Budget Office drafted a hit list of programs that Trump could eliminate
state to trim domestic spending. These include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Legal Services, AmeriCorps, and the National Endowments for the Arts and the Humanities. Trump wants to find nine programs to eliminate while increasing spending on defense and infrastructure. These programs listed cost under $500 million annually. That is a drop in the bucket for a budget expected to total $4 trillion this year. And despite Trump's rhetoric on drugs, the list surprisingly also includes the Office of National Drug Control Policy, as well as the Export-Import Bank. That has been the target of an aggressive campaign from the Koch brothers. Day 29, February 19th. Swedes woke up to the news that something horrible had happened in their country per Mr. Trump, except nothing had happened at all. During a rally on Saturday in Florida, Trump issued an attack on refugee policies in Europe, ticking off a list of places that had been hit by terrorists. Trump said, quote, you look what's happening. We've got to keep our country safe. You look what's happening in Germany. You look what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden, who would believe this? Nothing happened in Sweden, and Swedes were left confused and angry by the comments. Carl Bildt, a former prime minister and foreign minister, posted on Twitter, Sweden? Terror attack? What has he been smoking? And an estimated 100,000 people marched across America on Sunday to protest Trump's regime. John McCain, who was immersed as something of an unlikely protester-in-chief, also ripped Trump on news programs, intimating that his criticism of the press was fascist in nature. And Homeland Security Secretary John F. Kelly signed sweeping new rules that allowed authorities to more aggressively detain and deport illegal immigrants. Kelly is said to hire thousands of additional enforcement agents and expand the pool of immigrants who are prioritized for removal. Kelly's also demanding local law enforcement's cooperation. And Trump blessed the coal industry's practice of dumping tons of debris into the streams and mountain hollows of America's mining communities. Trump claimed the environmental order was a, quote, terrible job-killing rule and claimed he was saving many thousands of jobs when, in fact, he is allowing coal companies to avoid cleaning up their own messes. The rule he overturned would, in fact, cost 260 jobs and would have been offset by new jobs on the regulatory side. Moreover, Trump's fantasy of bringing jobs back to coal overlooks the shift taken by the nation's power plants, which have converted to natural gas. Trump is also seeking to overturn a rule which reduces emissions of methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas, and thousands of oil and gas wells across the West. The industry has claimed it is a bankrupting rule. In fact, the cost of this rule is less than 1% of revenues. And the New York Times reported that Trump's personal lawyer and a former business associate met privately in New York City last month with a member of the Ukrainian parliament to discuss a peace plan. The proposed plan would give Russia long-term control over Crimea and lead to the lifting of sanctions against Moscow. The meeting with Andrei V. Artemenko, a Ukrainian politician, involved Michael Cohen, a lawyer since 2007 for the Trump Organization, and Felix Sater, a former business partner who worked on real estate projects with Trump's company. The meeting suggests that some have been seeking to use Trump's business associates as an informal conduit to the new president. He has, of course, signaled a desire to form warmer relationships with Russia. That discussion took place amid increasingly intense scrutiny of the ties between Trump's team and Russia, as well as investigations on Capitol Hill. Day 30, February 20th. Anti-Trump activists held Not My President Day rallies across the country. Thousands were expected to take to the streets in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and as many as two dozen other communities in the latest round of demonstrations to oppose Trump's policies. On the same day, Trump announced Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, a widely respected military strategist, as his new national security advisor. Calling him a man of tremendous talent and tremendous experience, McMaster is considered an intellectual in the Army. He was the architect of the surge strategy adopted in Iraq to turn the tide. And Trump escalated his attack on Sweden's migration policies on Monday, doubling down into suggestion based apparently on a Fox 
Times News report that refugees in the Scandinavian country are behind a surge in crime and terrorism. Trump set off a lot of ridicule when he seemed to imply to a throng at a rally in Florida that a terrorist attack that occurred overnight in Sweden. Trump said later on on Twitter he was referring to a Fox News segment about an American filmmaker who argues that the police in Sweden were covering up a migrant-driven crime wave. That filmmaker's contention uh, has apparently no basis in reality. And Trump plans to issue a revised version of his ban targeting majority Muslim countries perhaps as early as today with a focus on fewer people. The new order would focus on the same seven countries but would only bar entry to those without a visa and who have never entered the United States before. People from the countries who already have a permanent U.S. residency, that's a green card, or a visa, would not face any restrictions. Day 31. February 21st, Trump spoke out for the first time about the rising tide of incidents and threats targeting Jewish people and institutions that has occurred since his inauguration. Trump said anti-Semitism is horrible and painful during a visit to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Trump made the comments after drawing criticism in recent days for failing to condemn anti-Jewish threats and actions. Trump said, quote, the anti-Semitic threats targeting our Jewish community on community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. Hate crimes have surged in the USA and the feds are investigating a wave of bomb threats at 10 Jewish community centers across the country. Centers in 10 states and here in Chicago at Hyde Park all reported phoned-in threats on the weekend. No one was injured and the threats appeared to be hoaxes. Also in Missouri, more than 100 headstones were found toppled over or damaged at a historic Jewish cemetery over the weekend. Previously, only Trump's daughter Ivanka Trump, who converted to Judaism after marrying Jared Kushner, had spoken out on the anti-Semitic wave. And the Department of Homeland Security ordered a major shift in the way the agency enforces the nation's immigration laws. The directives would also instruct ICE as well as Customs and Border Protection to begin reviving a program that recruits local police officers and sheriff's deputies to help with deportation, effectively making them de facto immigration agents. The effort called the 287G program was scaled back during the Obama administration and faces resistance from many states and dozens of so-called sanctuary cities, which have refused to allow their law enforcement workers to help round up undocumented individuals. Chicago is a sanctuary city. Trump has threatened to cut off all federal funding for sanctuary cities as well. Immigration agents Customs officer and border patrol agents have now been directed to remove anyone convicted of any criminal offense. The policy also calls for an expansion of expedited removals and will also allow border agents to stop anyone suspected of any crime. The change in enforcement priorities will require a considerable increase in resources. That department is directed to begin the process of hiring 10,000 new immigration and customs agents, expanding the number of detention facilities, and creating an office within ICE to help families of those killed by undocumented immigrants. Some 11 million undocumented migrants are thought to be in the United States. Day 32, February 22nd. President Trump rescinded protections for transgender students that had allowed them to use bathrooms corresponding with their gender identity, overruling his own education secretary and placing his administration firmly in the middle of the culture wars that many Republicans have tried to leave behind. It also contradicts Trump's stated position on the campaign trail, which seemed to suggest that transgender students should be able to use whatever bathroom they wished. In a joint letter, the top civil rights officials from Justice and the Education Department rejected the Obama administration's position that non-discrimination laws require schools to allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. That order led to a behind-the-scenes fight between Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. DeVos apparently resisted signing off on that order and told Trump she was uncomfortable with it. Sessions, who strongly opposes granting gay, lesbian, and transgender people protection, fought DeVos. Trump ultimately sided with Sessions and told DeVos to sign it or quit. The order did contain language stating that schools must protect transgender students from bullying, a provision DeVos insisted be included. DeVos has quietly been working 
behind the scenes to ensure that gay and lesbian people are treated equally and fairly. And according to newly released emails, the new EPA had Scott Pruitt worked hand-in-hand -hand with big business during his tenure as Oklahoma's Attorney General. Pruitt was in close coordination with the Koch brothers, major oil and gas producers, and electric utilities, according to over 6,000 pages of emails finally made public on Wednesday thanks to a lawsuit. Pruitt also held secret meetings to work on rolling back the Obama administration's environmental agenda. Pruitt's controversial nomination was approved by a party-line vote. Day 33rd, February 23rd. A Mexican man committed suicide half an hour after being deported from the United States. Guadalupe Olivas Valencia, 45, jumped from a bridge at the Chaparral Crossing. Witnesses said Mr. Olivas was shouting that he did not want to return to Mexico and seemed to be in severe distress. That bridge straddles the border cities of San Diego and Tijuana in Mexico. And the New York City Police Department said it cost $24 million to provide security for Trump and his family in New York at Trump Tower. That is below the $35 million the police had estimated, but still a shocking amount. The department said it cost $127,000 to $146,000 a day to, quote, protect the First Lady and her son while they reside in Trump Tower. If Trump is in New York City, the police department anticipates an average daily rate of $308,000. That would come out to just about $50 million a year if Trump avoided returning to Manhattan, or over $60 million if he began returning on weekends. And Trump's cost for protection vastly dwarfed that of Obama. Barely a month into the Trump presidency, the unusually elaborate lifestyle of the First Family is straining the Secret Service and security officials. Costs could balloon into the hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of a four-year term. Each trip to Mar-a-Lago is said to cost $10 million alone. Trump's approval rating was just 41% this week, the lowest ever for a first-term president. And in a new poll, for the first time, more Americans said they trusted the media more than Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Cardinal de Astalan covers sports from a supernatural perspective. Here is a taste of his special magic. Screams of Combat airs Mondays at midnight. Buenas noches. Estás escuchando... WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Estás escuchando gritos de combate. Con el cardenal de Aztlán. Nota número uno. Note number one. Combate estridente en el estadio. Este es un poema. Strident combat at the Stadium. Gritos de combate. Gritos rojos de los equipos vencedores. Gritos negros de los músculos vencidos. Es la fiesta del cuerpo multiplicado por aire, multiplicado por sol. 80 mil personas con alma infantil juegan mentalmente a la pelota con los cuerpos elásticos de los atletas de ULE, made in Central America. Y el juez, que es poeta académico, tendrá que descalificar al campeón olímpico por haber lanzado tan alto el disco de oro del sol. Juegos olímpicos para los niños dioses 
¿Cuándo acabará el maratón de los siglos? Aquellos corredores agonizantes quizás vengan de muy lejos, quizás vengan de otros mundos. Hay uno, rubio, que parece haber llegado esta misma mañana por el frágil puente de rayos que ha tendido el sol. Hay otro, moreno, que el trampolín lanzó más allá de las gradas y pronto enloqueció de azul al perderse en el espacio. Screams of combat, red shouts of winning teams, black screams of defeated muscles. It's the festival of the body multiplied by the air, multiplied by the sun. 80,000 people with children's soul. Ball game with elastic bodies of rubber athletes made in Centro America. And the judge, who is an academic poet, will have to disqualify the Olympic champion for having thrown the golden disc of the sun so high. Olympic Games for the children gods. When will the marathons of the centuries end? Those agonizing runners may come from far away. Maybe they come from other worlds. There is one, blonde, that seems to have arrived this morning for the fragile raid that the sun has laid. There is another one, black, that the trampoline threw beyond the bleachers and soon went mad in blue when he was lost in space. Melanie Adcock talks to the movers and shakers in our local tech community. This week, she spoke with Dan Green about transhumanism and whether or not workers will be replaced by robots. Recently nominated for a 2017 National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine Communication Award, Texing Chicago airs Fridays at 1 p.m. Our first guest today is Dan Green, Executive Director of First Illinois Robotics. He's here today to speak with us about their upcoming events and overall mission. Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Now, how, how long has the organization been around, FIRST Robotics? Uh, FIRST has been around for about 26 years, so it's mm -hmm. been been here for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, well, and how, and how did you first get involved? Uh, well, back in my Motorola days, I actually volunteered to get involved. I, I got recruited there, and uh, we had a local school that we were working with, Motorola was working with, and uh, I went and worked with some of those high school kids, and uh, we built some robots, and... Uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, one of the uh, one of the jokes we make with first is there's no exit strategy. That was 22 years ago, and I'm still doing it. So mm -hmm. uh, it's it's one of those things that just grabs you in because uh, the value that you see working with the kids and the excitement is just fantastic. Oh, yeah, well, well, good, and well, and, I, and I, I wanted to ask your opinion too on on the future of robotics. Um, we have a couple of questions about that here. Um, how how do you feel about digital labor and and the Robotic process automation. Um, they, it usually goes by the acronym RPA, and that's the the idea and concept that robots will replace a variety of repetitive tasks currently being done by humans. Uh, well, 
there's there's good and bad for that. Obviously, there are a lot of repetitive things that people don't really enjoy doing. That that I think uh, we can we can robotize them and uh, and make them a lot more effective, and it's more efficient for for companies to do that. And uh, uh, I think that's a positive thing. I mean, there's some negatives associated with uh, everybody's received those robocalls that are quite annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, or when you call up and you're on a, uh, you're listening to the answering machine and you, it takes you a while to talk to a human being, that nobody likes that kind of stuff. Um, uh, clearly, there's concerns that there are jobs that people are going to lose. But this is part of the culture and, that we have to actually work on. I mean, this is here, and uh, we need to train people to do different kinds of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, uh, my perspective is that not that we're losing jobs, it's that we're changing the types of jobs, and we're able to get more things done. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely and it makes, it makes training and education mu- that much more important, which kind of folds directly into what we're trying to do with FIRST Robotics, because our whole thing is we want to inspire kids to get more interested in learning about science and technology, engineering and math, that's STEM, um, uh, because they've got to create these things. And innovation, if you, if you look back at the history of the United States, the, the whole reason the United States grew is, uh, is uh, the amount of innovation we did. Obviously, there's some geographic things in the agriculture and all that, but, mm-hmm. but really, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all the things that we have innovated here, uh, we were at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what has made our standard of life. That's what's made uh, the United States a leader in the world. And if we want to continue in that position, we have to continue to have our youth interested in innovating. And they have to find these kind of things interesting and exciting. Uh, and uh, I don't want to bore you with, with facts and stuff, but I'll, I'll spit a couple of them out. Um, if you look at the numbers of where United States kids rank in science and math, mm-hmm. we're in the 20s and the 30s mm-hmm. in worldwide. Mm-hmm. That's not the world leader. If we want to be the That's ones right. that are leading the world, our kids need to be ranked higher. And um, it's not that our kids are any smarter or less intelligent than kids in other countries. I mean, everybody has the same potential. Mm-hmm. It's more about what you value in your culture and in your society and what we're really um, uh, motivating our kids to do. And mm-hmm. so we need to really make learning and, and value learning a lot higher and make it more exciting to kids. And that kind of falls into our Ballywick and what FIRST Robotics is all about. We're trying to make the science, technology, engineering, math, all that fun for the kids and get them excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is the right time for me to talk a little bit about what the program is because we, yeah. um, we have a number of different programs. Uh, we have four different age-appropriate programs for kids. We start with six-year-olds. We go all the way through graduating high school until they're 18. Um, and basically, um, the older kids are building big robots. I mean, the mm-hmm. big robots are five feet tall, 130 pounds, powered with motorcycle batteries, and they've got some powerful motors in it, and they play in a sports-like event. Um, Our big event for that in the Chicago area is at the UIC Pavilion in their big basketball stadium, and uh, they play on a field that's about the size of a half-court of basketball, and uh, every year there's a different object of the game, um, and uh, but you're always picking up some objects and putting them into a goal or multiple goals, and, uh, you know, there's offense and defense. It's three robots against three robots. And like I said, it's like a sporting event. Kids are driving around the robots with joysticks. And there's a couple thousand people in the stands cheering on the robots like they're watching a basketball game. And it's a lot of fun. 
And uh, we're using the idea of competition to get the kids excited about it. But getting to the competition is really the value, you know, because mm-hmm. they've got to build these robots. They've got to design them and build them and test them and make sure they work. And there's a lot of, you know, trial and error in that. There's a lot of failures. There's a lot of successes. And figuring out how to deal with when things work and when they don't work, that's a big learning experience. And kind of the, the competition and the fun of that is the gravy. It, it kind of, you know... Our, like I said, our whole thing is getting kids, and we want to get them at a young age because what we've learned is as kids grow and get older, they decide everything, anybody that's been to high school knows this, and I still remember it, everything's about what's cool, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've decided it's not cool to be in science or math, you aren't going to be doing anything technical because it's not cool. So if we want to start with kids when they're younger. And uh, starting with them when they're young, getting them involved in the stuff and showing them how much fun it is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so kind of in the back of our minds with everything we do is keeping it interesting and exciting um, and fun for the kids because we want them to come back. And uh, having that happen makes a big difference. Yeah. And so so um, the ro- robots are the gateway drug toward an interest in an engineering career. Um, I they mean, are. That's, that's kind of what. Um, now, I have a couple other things I want to ask you um, too, and we'll get back to that. But you mentioned some of the steps of getting kids in, into engineering. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about that? Uh, well, um, getting them inter- interested in engineering. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is having an interest level for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and one of the things we found with 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 working on this is a lot of times. Um, the kid will be working on an aspect of the robot, and um, they have to figure out gear ratio, or they have to figure out the arc that something's traveling, or something with trigonometry or whatever. Um, and they'll go, "Oh wow, I never realized why I needed that from my math class, or from my science class, or my physics class, or whatever." Um, and the, and the story we've heard these stories over and over. They go back to a teacher, and they ask them about some specific thing, and the teachers come to us and they go. What's going on with these kids? They're actually ask. They're actually interested in my subject, and they so they love that. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of the program that I that I should explain is, um, especially at the older ages, we bring professionals in to work with the the students. So um, it's not required that that happens, but we find that when we do make that happen, it's even more valuable for the kids. And so if you if you've got a kid working with an engineer that actually has experience. Uh, the kids learn something from that because they see the thought process that and the the techniques that the engineers use, and that motivates them. And the other thing that's interesting is seeing how excited these technology-oriented professionals are about what they do. Be you know, it, you know, it, an excited adult who's pa- really passionate about what they do for their job that makes a big impression, especially on a high school age kid. Mm-hmm. But uh, even the younger kids, the same thing. Seeing the excitement that the kids, that the adults have, that's, that's contagious. And the mm-hmm. kids, the kids grasp that and they definitely observe it and know about it. Very important. Yes. Um, that's a, thanks. Uh, I'm so glad that you're, you're sharing all this, uh, with us because I, I think it's good for, for our listeners to hear, um, you know, any, anything that they want their, their kids to do, they need exposure to it as, uh, as, as young people. It's so important. Um, now, and, and since, since we've got you here and this is all about robots and things, I, I wanted to ask, uh, 
you know, about the direction of robotics and we've talked about how kids respond to robots and things, but, but how, how do you feel about, um, you know, the idea of, of robots thinking for themselves and topics like transhumanism? Uh, well, uh, the whole artificial intelligence, very interesting subject, and uh, clearly it's controversial. There's a lot of people that are they're afraid of it. The people have seen The Terminator and all those, those movies on it. Um, but there are a lot of things that we can program robots to do that can be helpful to make life easier. Uh, uh, there are things that have been developed with, uh, you know, some of these robots that will automatically vacuum your house or clean the floors, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and when you think about it, there are a number of things that are really are simple robots, a washing machine, a dishwasher, those things you could argue are robots, you know, and then obviously um, uh, assembly lines in uh, factories and things like that. Yeah. And of course, it gets into the emotional aspect of, well, it's taking away jobs. Well, the way we really need to think about it is it's changing the types of jobs because there are people that need to know how do you design a robot? How do you maintain a robot? How do you fix it when it breaks? Mm -hmm. Those jobs can just as well be done by the people that maybe were doing the assembly line before. It's just it's all a matter of, of training and figuring out how to do that. And I don't think I don't think we've caught up yet to the advancement in technology. Um, uh, this is I'm giving you a personal opinion here, but but um, technology has advanced at an incredibly fast rate, as we know, with computers and all the things that have happened over the last, uh, you know, century, really. Um, but society has not really, um, I don't think, grown at the same rate in their ability to, first of all, understand what all these technologies are, but also how to use them. Um, and that's something we need to focus on. And to me, that's a part of this whole education process. I, I, I think we use this in our robotics as well, because Getting the kids trained and comfortable with technology and re actually understanding what it does and how it works and wanting to take things apart and see how things work mm -hmm. uh, is a huge part of it because understanding it helps you to understand how do we use it effectively in our society. Michael Rodriguez and Glenn Russell cover local DJ culture and perform experimental sets on our air several times a month on in-between radio stations. This week, they spoke to up-and-coming producer Ashina Hamilton about her self-released albums and how she learned how to play the drums. In-Between Radio Stations airs every second and fourth Wednesday from 7 to 10 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to introduce Ashina Hamilton to the show. Ashina, okay. thank you so much for being Thanks here for with us me, tonight. Oh, Glad to be here. Yeah. I met her at 606 Records. And that was during the 24 by 24 event. I happened to be there when you were spinning That's your right. set yeah. and just enthralled with the song selection that you played and just just like enamored and just watching you just control your set with just like fluid precision and like pinpoint accuracy. Thank you. Really impressed with what I heard and also your performance as well. So that's where I met Ashina. How yeah. about you, Glenn? I, I guess for me too... Um, I had listened to uh, your Sovereign State record, and that was also um, another entry point. So, um, into my understanding of who Ashina really was. Yeah, and for our listeners to get an understanding of who you are, Ashina, <laughs> can you tell us about where you grew up and what kind of music was surrounding you at that time? Still feel like I'm growing up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we all do. I, Good answer. Yeah. Good answer. Um, I, uh, 
As far as, well, as far as uh, being surrounded by music, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I started paying attention to music when I was maybe like four or five or so. I had like a little little Walkman, a little cassette uh-huh. okay. with the headphones, you know? Um, and I don't know, I, I, I probably first started listening to like parent, like my, my, the music my parents were listening to uh, and stuff on the radio on like, I guess, commercial radio stations. So sure. it would have been like late 80s, early 90s stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was the first band you remember liking? That's a good question. Um, to be honest with you, I, I, I guess I, I probably liked songs that I heard on the radio yeah. quite a bit, and I didn't, I didn't really know much about those, the bands or the artists. I remember uh, one of the first bands I, I think I looked into is I heard like disco on the, on the bus, the school bus. You okay. know, it was like Chic. I found out who it was, who was, who was, who was the, the artist. And uh, so this is like much, much after Chic was actually, you know what I mean? It was like probably in the 90s, I guess, when I heard this. And I guess I, I, I remember kind of like a, a liking how they kind of held, held grooves down, how there would just be like this sort of period of like a groove. And I guess that was a, a later I found out this is, you know, what uh, Nile Rodgers, Bernard Edwards were yes. also yeah. the masterminds behind Chic. So wow. I don't know if that's the first band, but that's uh, I was thinking, trying to think about that. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that was. That's cool. Yeah. So, did you play instruments early on, or what instruments do you play? Um, I dabble with piano and I dabbled with drums, but I wouldn't say that I'm I'm no maestro at, at either. Okay. Or any particular instrument. I'm not like a classically trained person. Do you still dabble now? Uh, not not in drums, but uh, so in piano, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. were you ever part of a band? No, no. Well, yeah. Interesting. So, uh, when did you become interested in becoming a DJ? Um. I guess like uh, about it's probably been about a decade. A friend of mine, so I was I was actually more intrigued by making music and like making beats and figuring out like making making grooves basically. Sure. And I would go to a, uh, to a friend's house and uh, he had turntables and CDJs. So we kind of started messing around with those, and I think that's the first time first time I I started messing with DJ equipment. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So you have released two records, I believe, are both self-released. Can you tell us what motivated you to do this? Um, I guess life is short. <laughs> and uh, they, they both uh, represented uh, this idea, like, like a, so I would say two separate ideas, and I wanted to, I guess, share those ideas, yeah. you know, or at least put them out there and see what people thought. Maybe. And how's how's the response been? Um, yeah, it's been it's been good. It's been uh, interesting. Uh, response has been pretty good. I think I, I I more or less did it just to ha- just to say like this is an idea, and no matter what happens, I I feel good putting the idea out there. Wow. That's like you know. So what made you decide you wanted to put it on vinyl? Um, well, uh, spinning vinyl and wanting to have a copy of this, I guess. I'm kind of intrigued with the whole process. I like, I don't know, I, 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 like, really started getting into the whole thing with, like, the artwork and getting, like, labels and stuff like this, but I guess just, so I would say having something to hold, oh, you know, excellent. where I could have put it out on CD, but, uh, yeah, just different. <laughs> so, Ashina, you were telling us some of the sounds, um, that you were using and were, um, recorded, and some of them were, like, from an elevator yeah, and an elevator yeah. gate. Uh, so there's like a little, like this, this high pitch sound. One of them, I think, uh, might have been the hi hat. And there's another sound. Uh, it's a high pitch, kind of a percussive sound. That it was uh, from my friend's elevator. She had some some old accordion style doors, and yeah, it was like making this this cagey kind of sound. And I was just kind of messing around in there, recording it, 
and then I ended up, you know, going through those, and I was like, okay, I was, you know, just through some stuff. So what, can I ask, like, what program you're using that you're, like, then taking that file and cutting it up? And... Yeah, I, I use Ableton. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I feel yeah. like I've, I've used it for so long, that it's just like, I know it so well. Maybe I'll use <laughs> something else one day, I don't know, but it's just like, yeah, I know Excellent. it, know it pretty well. Cool. So, so tell us about the, can you tell us about the video for that track? Yeah, How that came a, about. It's beautiful. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, all right. So uh, there's like two, I think like two different like main segments. One is uh, this like this this train going through a tunnel and that's actually of the CTA. It's actually footage of the CTA. I didn't I didn't record. Oh, so you got really <laughs> actually, up in front there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually film this. I, I got this. I kind of had like a sort of hodgepodge some stuff together. Sure. And it was... Uh, like stock um, photography stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. Like there's there's some like free public domain stuff yeah. <laughs> of like people in factories and people right. working. I'm like this kind of fits like the, the the song or like the feeling of the song. I feel like it's all in landscape. Okay. Yeah. Factory. So did you put it all together yourself? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, excellent. Wow. Adobe yeah, Premiere. It's good. Oh. Uh, it's good. 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 Fun. So on the track taking form, there are some amazing vocals. Can you tell us about how that was done? Uh, all right. Sure. I think. Uh, so that's uh, so taking form is the song after the one that you're talking about. It's actually Sun- Sunday Intermood is is the one you're talking about that has the vocals and it's a gospel. There's there's gospel vocals. Okay. It's like Sister Rosetta Tharp. I have this record of like gospel kings and queens or something like this, you know. And I was uh, making this this like groove one day, just kind of messing around. And that that song Sunday Intermood actually has like a weird like beat. And they're from the the windows in my in my car. Like like there's like automatic windows that if you uh, press these, it's kind of like a so kind like um, so I used the, the recorder recorded these and then put them in Ableton and it was just messing around. And I was okay, like, so right, now a beat. I'm not the only person who hears music in yeah, the noise. Yeah, we were talking like, about yeah. that with the whole Bjork thing, the dancer in the dark thing, and the whole mm-hmm. the, the uh, yeah. Know, like there's there's some sounds that are like they offer different textures maybe. Sure. Yeah. And wow. uh, that they're just, they, they have sounds like I, I can't have, like, there's nothing on my keyboard or nothing on, like, my, my synth that I can press and it sounds like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I love that you make your own sounds because that's, Sometimes, like, not, not, yeah, not, yeah. You know, uh, not one of the thing. exciting, you know, like, there got to be, like, the drum sound of the day and, like, all those, like, 80s records all have, like, you know, it's very specific what the drum program yeah. is, a sure. 606 or whatever. And just, I think, the fact that you're able to, like, take other sounds and use that to make beats. I love that. So then late last year, you released a second record called, and please correct me. Mickey Miyoshi. Mickey. Mickey. Mickey Miyoshi? Uh, Mickey. Mickey Miyoshi. Mickey Miyoshi. Forgive me. That's okay. Mickey, if you're listening. Distant Memories. Tell us about this recent project. Um, hmm. There's some songs on it. There's a there's some train there's some train train field recordings or like subway field recordings. All of it kind of has like a airy quality, I think, to it. Okay. Um, and that that represented an idea, like like a distant memory seems like this, you know, it's a sort of an airy concept, I guess. Huh. And a lot of the music on there has an airy quality, like or or actually ha- like it has something to do with a distant memory. So I have a question for you. So you decided to call the second album. Yeah. Um, Miki Miyoshi, and the first one was called Sovereign State. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to come up with a different name? As strange as it sounds, they, they f- it feels like two different things. Like the one feels kind of kind of like lighthearted, and I don't want to say innocent, but the um, so we could say say distance mem- distant memory sounds or feels a little more lighthearted, and uh, 
So this feels like Miki Miyoshi and the sovereign state thing. I don't know where that'll go in the future, but it, it felt a little more, I don't know, I don't want to say dystopian kind of or or, okay. or uh, heavier. Kind of felt a little more political maybe for me, for, uh-huh. possibly. Um, and so, yeah, those are those are like two separate, two separate ideas, and they felt like two coming from two separate places in a weird way, if that makes sense. That makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, so, so the, they're both, yeah, the Sovereign State and Mickey Millish are just monikers. Okay, just, so just you're kinda, just basically, yeah. um, if something else feels like Mickey Miyoshi, you yeah, might do that. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So do you ever perform any of this live? I don't, in my room. <laughs> Is that ever anything you'd be interested ever in doing? Or? Potentially, I just don't, I don't, I don't see how, how that would be so interesting or how I could make that interesting, you know what I mean? Because if I'm like making something, I'll sit down and it's like it could take me two hours before I stumble across something or kind of get into a groove or I feel that there's something interesting. So it would get kind of hard to, you know, present sure. that maybe. So I have, I have like since and keyboards and stuff like that too, but I don't know. I, I uh, Maybe, maybe this is something So oh. feels a little, I feel shy sometimes too, you know? I don't know, but yeah. We'll see. Understood. I, I we'll can see. respect. Yep. I can respect shyness. So you make a record, let's say like 500 copies. How do you distribute them and get them into the hands of someone that will buy them? Hmm. So I didn't press that many. Um, There's like half of that. Uh, I guess I I did some research and sent some emails. Called some people. Mostly sent emails and just kind of saw what would happen. I'm like, all right, if I have, if I don't sell any records, I have these, I still feel kind of good about doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely. So, yeah. I mean, is there a, a, there's any, any kind of a distribution process? Or? Um, there, there, uh, I guess there, there is in a sense, um, Crosstalk handles that, uh, like I'm using them. And then with all the stores in Chicago, I've just, um, contacted people on my own, um, oh. and then contacted a couple of stores in other places and then. I guess hooked them up with crosstalk. I'm not sure how that's going right now, but I think I think it's okay. Yeah. That's always my fear is that if you were ever to take this leap and, and do something like that, yeah. that, I would just wind up with this trunk full of sure. them and be like, what are, you know, what did I do this for? Like, someone someone told me to, uh, maybe to look at it as like an expensive art project or an expensive thing that you have to say, and it's like once I can do that, maybe that, then I feel better. Sure. About it, yeah. Okay. Or yeah. I get it. Yeah. So I had a little bit of help too. I did like a crowdfunding thingy and then a bunch of like friends and family helped me out. So then I figured, all right, I, yeah, I'll sell, sell these and whatever money I make back, maybe I can put a second idea out. And then, so I'll just try to use that, uh, whatever funds I make back from my go to future projects or something. So that's cool. Yeah. Technology and the internet. Yes. And intuition <laughs> and passion. <laughs> are there any musical goals you are working towards right now? Um, Probably just to keep exp- trying to emote things or express ideas, hopefully, is a, is a thing. I'm working on some stuff again. I have no idea what's going what's gonna to happen. Um, and then I might start, I've been fooling around with the uh, piano a little bit more. Maybe I'll, I'll do that and kind of be more, we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Try to you know, here's just learn more things. I just thought of this at the moment, but, you know, a lot of that is so kind of cinematic. It, it might be an opportunity to do something, mm-hmm. score something. You know what I mean, like a film or a short film or cool. something. But don't you? Don't you think? Like, yeah, definitely. Like that might be some something just to think about. Yeah. I thought I've I've thought about that. It would be kind of. It, it seems like a fun challenge. I think, but uh, tough. 
tough. Like like I, maybe I respect the t- the like like there wouldn't be an easy thing, but it's definitely an intriguing idea. I think. Hmm. Are there any uh, people or particular artists you find inspirational or influential? A lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot. We were talking about Bjork earlier. That's a big one. Um, as far as oh, let's see here, as we, we talked about Aphex Twin. Um, Theo Parrish in the past has been a has been a influential person. There's 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 a lot of stuff. You know, if I listen to it and I like it, I feel like it's some shape or form. It's inspirational, like the the uh, Barbara Lewis yeah. from earlier, uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Um, let's see, Yellow Magic Orchestra. His his work with uh-huh. with them. Uh, there's a lot of slow dive. Yeah. I've been listening to that lately. Oh. Yeah. Can we play a Four. track? Let's sure. listen to, uh, if we may, let's listen to Rachel Bias. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.